Amen. Thank you, Brenda, for that. Well, I'm excited to begin a new series this morning, and we're going to be taking a look for these next few weeks at the history and the high value of the Bible, the Word of God. And so if you have your Bible today, if you turn to the book of 2 Timothy, and I'm going to read just two verses this morning. I won't make you stand. Just two verses here. 2 Timothy 3. And as you get there, we see some foundational truth in the Word of God. Paul was writing a letter to a young man named Timothy, and he was letting Timothy know that the authority to minister in the first place comes from God's Word. And actually, if we're back up, I know your notes say verse 16, but I want to back up to verse 15, and look what he tells him, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And this first week we're going to look at authority. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for the Spirit of God who makes the word of God clear to us, who illuminates the word of God to our minds and our hearts. And I pray that our souls would be receptive today to this truth. I pray that you would give us understanding of the scriptures and of where we get the scriptures and help us to live and apply these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to do something a little different, interrupt the service for just a moment. Preacher would never tell you, obviously, but it's his 42nd birthday today. Let's give him a hand clap. And if everybody could join in and sing with me, happy birthday to Pastor this morning. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, God bless you. Happy birthday to you. And then one more thing this morning. Brother Terry Hines is actually counting money. He took my card, but we have a card for you this morning from the church uh, we want to present to you. And a lot of people here have some uh, gifts or cards they want to give you on the way out this morning. If you'll hand that to him on the way out. And then also, after the evening service, we're going to have a birthday party in his honor. Ice cream, his favorite ice cream, I believe. Cake. Uh, some punch. So if you would join us, come this, come this evening, uh, join us for that party celebration after the evening service. Thank you. Come ye sinners lost and hopeless Jesus' blood can make you free, for he saved the worst among you, when he saved a wretch like me, and I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes, I know, 
Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. To the faint he giveth power, through the mountains makes a way, findeth water in the desert, turns the night to golden day. And I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. In temptation He is near thee. Holds the powers of hell at bay. Guides you to the path of safety. Gives you grace for every day. And I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Hey, Sing it again. Sing it again. Come ye sinners lost and hopeless Jesus' blood can make you free For he saved among you when he saved a wretch like me and I know yes I know Jesus blood can make the vilest sinner clean and I know yes I know Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. To the faint he giveth power, through the mountains makes a way, findeth water in the desert, turns the night to golden day. And I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. In temptation He is near thee. Holds the powers of hell at bay. Guide you 
safety, gives you grace for every day. And I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Amen. Love that song. Great old hymn. Well, sometimes we get in situations with unbelievers or with skeptics or sometimes with outright atheists. And uh, I'm assuming that most people in here are believers today. If you're an unbeliever, just bear with us this morning. And yeah, we're going to be speaking from the scriptures here. But when we do deal sometimes with jabs or zings that are thrown out against our God or against Christianity or against the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's hard for us to know what to say or to know how to answer. Maybe you've had it happen in your workplace or at your family Thanksgiving dinner and you just hear some mutter under your breath, oh, that's right, you don't do that, you're a church person. Or I was just reading a fascinating article about a uh, about how they've uncovered proof that the Bible's a conspiracy. You know, they come up with all these strange things around you. And if those people were ever genuinely interested, you could have a really nice conversation with them. But a lot of times they're not, and so you're stuck giving some soundbite back to their jab. But if you ever did get them into a conversation, here's what I'd like to ask you about today. Are you ready to answer legitimate questions about your faith. The truth is, most of us feel like we aren't that prepared. Even when it comes to questions about the foundation of our faith, the Holy Scriptures. So how did we get the Bible? Let that one hang there for a second. How can we know that the Bible has the right number of books in it? Are some Bible versions more trustworthy than others? Instead of putting the pressure on you today to answer those questions, we hope to take this series and provide you with some basic information about our God-breathed book, the Bible. The word Bible comes from a Greek word meaning book, the word logos. Uh, if, if you want to be prepared about this, and if you want to know these things, you want to be proper about these things, the Bible is referred to as the Holy Bible, because it's God's holy book. And since God is the author, the Bible is the world's greatest book. It is the all-time bestseller. It is read by more people than anyone else or anything else. It's translated into more languages than anything else. The first book ever printed on a printing press. Oh, by the way, the, the Bible has altered the course of human history countless times entering into the worst parts of societies and leaving behind order and civilization. The influence of God's Word has brought down evil empires. It has instilled values across the globe. 
If you need proof of what an impact the Bible has made in American history, all you have to do, do is look at our early documents. And look at our founding fathers, George Washington, our first president, on his tomb is John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though we were dead, yet shall he live. It is the most quoted book in human history. It has the most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer. It has the most famous psalm, Psalm 23. The Bible has been recited by coal miners who were trapped and about to die. The Bible has been quoted by astronauts on the moon. The Bible has been used to swear in presidents, Supreme Court justices, senators, representatives. It is exactly right on scientific issues way before scientists catch up with it. Uh, scientists found out that from the Bible that running water would wash their hands better. And that's in the Old Testament. They uh, discovered that the earth was round finally. In about 1500, the Bible had said it 3,500 years before. The Bible intricately describes the water cycle in the book of Job, which chronologically is the first book that was in the Bible. And uh, there, here's some quotes I pulled that I'd like to read to you. Uh, these are just some quotes from some of our leaders in early American history. John Adams, president of the, of the United States, said this, The Bible is the best book in the world. That pretty much sums it up. Another president, Thomas Jefferson, said, The Bible is the source of liberty. Here's what John Quincy Adams said, one of our other presidents. So great is my veneration of the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens to their country and respectable members of society. I have for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once a year. It's one of our presidents. Abraham Lincoln said this about the Bible. In regard to this great book, I have but to say, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has given to man. All the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But for this book, we could not know right from wrong. All things most desirable for man's welfare here and hereafter are to be found portrayed in it. And those are just some of our presidents. Theodore Roosevelt said this, I enter a most earnest plea that in our hurried and rather bustling life of today, we do not lose the hold that our forefathers had on the Bible. I wish to see the Bible study as such a matter of course in the secular colleges as in the seminary. And Theodore Roosevelt was at the turn there of the 20th century. Here's another quote. Benjamin Franklin, who sometimes in history is portrayed as being an atheist or a deist, if you will. Here's what he said. A Bible and a newspaper in every house, a good school in every district, all studied and appreciated as they merit, are the principal support of virtue, morality, and civil liberty. This is a unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States in 1844. And we cannot overlook the blessings which such men by their conduct as well as their instructions may, nay, must impart to their youthful pupils. Why may not the Bible, and especially the New Testament without note or comment, be read and taught as a divine revelation 
in the school. Its general precepts expounded, its evidences explained, and its glorious principle of morality inculcated. So these are just some early quotes. Now, you say, well, wait just a second. That would be imposing religion on people. And what about the separation of church and state? And you're getting into all these other issues. I dare you to find separation of church and state in the Constitution. Like, go ahead and look it up today and show it to me tonight here at the service. It's not in there. You know, the phrase is not in there. This wall of separation of church and state uh, was designed to keep the state out of the church. They had come from countries and places in Europe where there were state churches. And what they said is in the United States, we want freedom of religion. The state cannot come in and impose any religion or any denomination on the people of that state. And you can read about that in history. Now, you're going to have to hang with me in this series because we're going to put a lot of information out there. And I know these quotes, sometimes it's hard to keep up with that. Maybe we should put them up on the screens um, to, to get it right. But I want you to hear one more. Listen to this. This is Robert Winthrop, Speaker of the House from 1847 to 1849. Here's what he said. Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or the bayonet. So Winthrop, he said, men are going to be controlled either by what's inside of them or by what's outside of them. And that thought eloquently describes the direction we're headed this morning. In coming weeks, we're going to give you a detailed history on the path the Bible took from God's heart to our hearts. But this morning, we need to talk about authority. And so if you have the notes that are provided in your bulletin, get buckled in and let's go. We'll start with choosing an authority. Choosing an authority. I'll tell you this right up front. Someone is in charge of your life and your eternity this morning. Somebody's in charge of your life. Hopefully it's not you. Because if you're in charge of your own life, you're headed for disaster. As human beings, we can't manage one life very well. But think about trying to manage your own health, your own finances, your own vehicles, your own family, your own job. We can't even put all that together without a lot of mistakes, right? You with me on that? How many of you have made absolutely no mistakes this week? Okay, just Vivian. She's the only one. And uh, goodness knows because of the experience she's had, right? How old are you, Vivian? 87. So see, she's got this thing put together now. But for the rest of us, we're in desperate need of help. And I know some of you, you're good in one component of your life. Like you got your finances in order but your family life's in bad shape. Or maybe you're healthy, but your cars don't run well. We, we all have strengths and weaknesses, but when we try to run our own life, we're in big trouble. And uh, here we are as individuals, can't even manage our own life, and yet somehow we feel like sometimes that we could manage our own eternity. 
We live in a world where people discount the truth and the veracity of the Scriptures all the time. A lot of times based on an opinion that they heard from somebody on the internet, or they heard from a professor in college, or that they read in a book. And they will come with this great one-liner to you about why they don't believe the Bible. You know, if you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God... I will make the most simple statement to you. You have chosen yourself to be the authority of your life. Catch that? If you do not claim God's Word as your final authority, you have chosen yourself to be the final authority. And that may not work out really well for you. In fact, it's going to be a disaster for you. You say, well... Truth has just been around. Yeah, but where did it come from? It came from God's Word. Do you know, in every dispute, we seek truth based on the premise of a truth. If I have a, if I have a dispute with you, how many of you have ever had a run-in with a neighbor before? Oh, come on, raise your hands up. About fences or water or dandelions or whatever it is. Um, this year, it's uh, the little stink bug beetles, right? The stink bug beetles from the neighbor's yard are clearly flowing into our yard. And it's their fault. They really should get the exterminator out and get rid of those bugs because they certainly didn't come from our house, right? And, uh, but we have these disputes, and we have these arguments with each other. And when we have an argument with each other, you know what we appeal to? We appeal to the logic that says that we're right. Now, where did that logic come from? It came from somewhere. Where does general logic and general truth come from if not God and the Scriptures? That's the basis of everything that we hold to. There are atheists who say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that there's any truth outside of myself but don't murder one of my kids. Well, why not? If there's no truth, what would be wrong with it? Well, it would just be wrong. Well, what would make it wrong? Well, it's just not polite. Murder is not polite. Right? It just wouldn't be correct if you murdered one of my children. Well, what says it's not right? And you know, any person that you have this honest discussion with has to finally admit that truth came from somewhere. Otherwise, we're animals and we can do whatever we want. And there shouldn't be any repercussions and there shouldn't be anybody con condemning us. And yet we find condemnation of each other and judgment of each other everywhere we turn. And so there's this choosing of an authority that has to take place. Elijah laid out this argument to the false prophets on Mount Carmel almost 3,000 years ago. If you've never read this incident, you should sometime. It's in 1 Kings 18 in the Bible. And he stood on top of this mountain and he said to the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, How long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal be God, follow him. Here's what's interesting right after it says that. It says, and the people answered him not a word. 
They didn't have anything to say back to him. They were still making up their minds. The young ones were watching the older ones to see how they would respond. The unpopular people were waiting to see what the popular people would do. You ever seen a little two or three year old? You're sitting around the table and all of a sudden uh, you guys are having a conversation about uh, some, some things that maybe only adults or teenagers would understand. And all of a sudden the two year old's cracking up, just laughing his or her head off. Why does the kid do that? Because that kid is responding to what you did. That kid is learning the basics of life and how to respond from you. And so they were waiting on top of Mount Carmel to see what everybody was going to do. And nobody wanted to be a leader and say, let's follow God. The unpopular people, whoever they are, are always waiting to see what the popular people do. It always cracks me up when some sort of celebrity says that they have become a Christian, even in a generic way. Maybe they say, I've read the Bible before. I hold to some truth. And all of a sudden, Christians get all pumped up about it. And they send emails to each other. And they put it on Facebook. Matthew McConaughey has a Bible in his house. And I was like, whoa, oh my goodness. Matthew McConaughey believes in God. Now it's okay. See what I'm saying? So we sometimes validate our truth by the basis of celebrity. I think that's the first time I've ever had Matthew McConaughey on a sermon CD ever in my life. And now I've done it three times. Goodness gracious. But sometimes that's what we do. We say, well, if so-and-so believes it, then it must be true. Right? If he thinks it's wrong, then of course it's got to be wrong. And sometimes you meet people who are just the opposite. If he says it's true, then it's certainly not true. Right? You probably have an uncle or a cousin or somebody in your family. No matter what they say, you go the opposite direction. Like you disagree with them. Mario's with me on this. He has a cousin that's just like this. I can see him laughing back there. So thank you. Thanks for paying attention. Got somebody back there that's on my team. Love that. We have these disputes in our own life because of authority. Authority is a choice that you have to make for yourself. And you're either going to embrace the final authority of God's Word or you're going to be powered by self those are the only two options, and we'll get more on that in a minute. Let's go to this second part of the message, charting God's administration. Charting God's administration. As I said, we're going to have some details on the Bible path in coming weeks, how we got the Bible. But this morning, I just want to get you thinking a little bit about the process that brought us the Holy Bible. And uh, some of our life groups studied this this morning, and we're just going to touch on these. It began with inspiration. God breathed His words to mankind. And we read that in our text passage in 2 Timothy 3. Look also over to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bible, turn right over there. 2 Peter chapter 1. And when you get there, let's go down to verse number 20. 2 Peter 1. At verse number 20, just to show my sympathy for everybody on this side of the room, I'm taking my jacket off. just want you to know that you're not the only ones who are feeling hot. You guys doing okay over there? Yeah? 
three people just looked at me like, the rest of you are dead asleep. Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 20. Knowing this, first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so inspiration says that God breathed his words through man. And there were human instruments involved. We know that. They all had different backgrounds. They had different personalities. But God used average, ordinary men to record the Bible. I'm sure you know that God could have dropped the word of God down from heaven in leaflets. He could have done it any way he wanted. But instead, he chose about 40 men over a period of about 1,500 years to record his words for us. And in that mix, there were kings, there were priests, there were prophets, shepherds, farmers, physicians, even fishermen. Something you need to know about God's inspiration. God's word is infallible. Let me tell you what that means. And if you want to look that word up later, that's great. Infallible means it contained no errors in its original manuscripts. So as those human beings took God's word and put them on parchment or animal skin or whatever it was, there were no errors. That's infallible. Let me give you another big word here. It's also inerrant. Now you can look at that one up too. I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T. And inerrant has a different meaning in history than maybe you would look up on Google today. Here's what it has meant in time past. It means that it has been brought down to our time without corruption. Okay, it's inerrant. And what that means is I could go to Washington, D.C., and I could go into the archives building. How many have ever been there? Okay, not a good example. How many of you have ever seen, what's it called, National Treasure? Right, here I've stubbed my toe on the movies again here in the sermon. Um, it's about that where they steal the Declaration of Independence, right? You guys with me on this? They steal the Declaration of Independence. Okay, so he takes the, the deal out of the, the gift shop and it's rolled up and hides it. Did you know that that thing that he rolled up is the exact same as the Declaration of Independence? Has the same exact words, has the same exact signatures. Everything about it is the same as it was when it was written. That is inerrancy. Okay? You guys blown away by this? That is inerrancy. He's, yes, he's with me. Okay. We're, we're getting big terms here. Now, you got people who've got to stick with me, okay? We don't have a whole bunch of far-fetched media on this today. Stick with me. So, it's infallible. That means it was originally perfect. And it's inerrant, which means it's been passed to us in perfection. Okay, so stick with me on that. Now that's where preservation comes in. It's our second part. Preservation. God keeps his words to every generation. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Even though the first books of the Bible were written and copied by hand around 3,500 years ago, we still have the same words today. Now we're going to find in a couple of weeks that not all manuscripts are as trustworthy as others. 
but that's for another session. Here's a question I have for you, and maybe you guys be able to attach this. Has anybody in here ever had a perfect peach? Have you ever eaten a perfect peach? Like I said, that peach is absolutely perfect. Like, if I had every peach that I ever ate to be just like that peach, I would be happy as a clam. You guys with me on that? How about, uh, how many of you are apricot people? You people have nothing that you like, right? How many people like air? Okay, good. It's the same air that Noah's donkey breathed. How many people like water? Right, you know where that came from, Noah's camel. Well, anyway, all right. Um, apricots, okay, apricots. So you have apricots at your house, right? Here's an announcement right in the middle of the sermon. Tree full of apricots. See the man on the bib overalls, right? Enough said. So back to the perfect peach thing. Some of you have had a perfect peach before. How many of you, if I said, where is the world's best steak? You could tell me, right? How many of you are still trying to find that? Still efforting? How many of you have had at least one or two that you think would be in the running? Okay, now every barbecue guy is raising his hand right now because he cooks the world's best steak. You know what I'm saying? What's the world's best steak? Anyone I've ever cooked. Even if nobody else in the family could possibly stomach it because it was so grilled and so beaten down, I was eating it saying, ain't this good? I don't know what I'm going to do with you people today. I'm really working things up here to get you to understand this. So the steak, how about, okay, do this one. July, hot. How many of you have ever had the perfect piece of watermelon? Oh, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Now, Dawson and I, a few years ago, we were at the Alamo on July 4th. It was really neat. And they read the Declaration of Independence, and it was like a hundred and something degrees in San Antonio with humidity. And we were both about to die. And we walked across the Alamo lawn, and there before us, people with sliced watermelon taking it out of a tub of ice. Yeah. Now, you know where I'm going with this, right? We went over and got a piece. Oh my goodness, it was the perfect watermelon. And so was the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And after like the sixth one, my belly was so full of watermelon juice that I couldn't stand anymore. And so I waited five minutes and then had some more. <laughs> See, now we're getting somewhere. I like you guys. You're working with me here. We had to get through the hard technical terms, but now we're to watermelon, something we can all understand. Uh, here's, here's what I want you to know. You think this, you've got to possibly, you know, get your brain in this. Riddle me this. How many times did God create watermelon? One time. How many times did God create peaches? One time. And apricots? One time. And how many times did God create cattle? One time. Riddle me this. How can I still eat a perfect piece of watermelon today? If God only made watermelons one time. 
Here's how. Preservation. Okay? Now, it's the same thing with the Bible. God's words are from eternity past, given by God, sealed forever. And yet they're preserved for us today, pure as the watermelon I ate at the Alamo on July 4th. I'm sweating up here because you guys. I thought we had you with the watermelon thing. I thought we were going somewhere. And then all of a sudden we dropped like a balloon. All right, you guys get preservation? Can we move on? Thumbs up on this? Okay, here we go. The Bible says that he spake and it was done. He breathed out creation. He commanded and it stood fast. And so God has preserved these things. And forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God managed the preservation. You know, preservation was not just some easy task. It required detailed, extremely detailed copies over centuries. They didn't have a Xerox machine. They didn't have a Minolta. They didn't have whatever you had at your office. Okay, they had to actually do it all by hand. And it is insane. If you have ever been to a place where they have old books that were copied by hand, what the detail was that went into those. My wife and I, years ago, we went to some library, and I don't even know the name of it, in Ireland. And it's at uh, Christ College or something. And the library was like all the way back from the 1300s. And inside of there, they had hand-illustrated books that had been copied for centuries and centuries and centuries. And looking at that, just insane how they did that. And so I was reading about the rules that some of the scribes had. Listen to this. This is incredible. Some of the scribes who kept the tabs on the Old Testament books in Hebrew, I'm just going to give you seven of their rules. Right? Do you think you guys can handle seven? Everybody go like this. Okay. Yeah. Don't shake your head no. I'll slap you, boy. <laughs> Here we go. Number one. The parchment used to make scrolls had to be made from a skin of a ceremonial clean animal. It could be prepared only by a Jew. The skins had to be fastened together by strings taken from clean animals. That's rule number one. Rule number two. Each column could have no fewer than 48 and no more than 60 lines. So they had to count them. Detail. Number three. The ink had to be black and prepared according to a special recipe. Okay? So you had to get it exactly right. Number four. No word or letter could be written from memory. The scribe had to have an authentic copy before him and was to read and pronounce aloud each word before writing it. So in, in, the, the, beginning, beginning, B-E-G-I-N-N-I-N-G. Except it was in Hebrew. 
Number five. The scribe, listen to this one. It's rule number five. The scribe was to reverently wipe his pen each time before writing the word Elohim. It's the word God. And this is insane, this rule. He had to wash his whole body before writing the word Yahweh, Jehovah, lest God's name be contaminated on the scroll. Do you hear that? That is just the detail. Number six, the revision of a manuscript had to be made within 30 days after the work was finished. Otherwise, the manuscript was to be condemned. One mistake on a sheet disqualified the entire sheet. And three mistakes on any one sheet disqualified the entire manuscript. So if you were writing the book of Genesis, and you got to the end of the book, they didn't have chapters back then, but say chapter 48, and all of a sudden the scribe got sleepy, and he made three mistakes on the page, guess what happened to the whole book of Genesis? Gone. Condemned. It's rule number six. You guys are chopping a bit for number, rule number seven, aren't you? You know what? If I didn't do rule seven, everybody would be mad at me, wouldn't you? <laughs> you guys are crazy, man. This July crowd, I'm telling you what, like everybody wants to go on vacation or something. Number seven, listen to this one. Every word and every letter was to be counted. And if a letter were omitted, or if an extra letter were inserted, or if two letters touched one another, the manuscript was to be destroyed. Those are the rules for copying Scripture. And so the next time that somebody says to you, well, the Word of God was just written by man. A bunch of guys just got together and came up with it at a drinking party one time back in the old days. They sat on boulders and roasted some elk and they just wrote down some stuff on some scrolls. Yeah, probably not. The Word of God is preserved. That's God's process. All right, so anyway. Then we talk about canonization. I'm going to go quick on this one. This is the way that God compiled His words into a single volume. Okay, how many of you know when the Bible was originally done that it wasn't packaged in black leather and put into one volume? You guys understand now? It was a compilation of 66 separate books and uh, 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. Now, maybe you did not know this. The Old Testament was originally 26 books. I'm going to blow your mind. I shouldn't have even gone there. But the minor prophets was all piled into one. It was called the group of the twelve. Sorry, shouldn't have done that. Some of you just, you're like, you're killing us out there. Okay, you got that? She got it. I like this. Got, if I could get one person on every point of the message to just go like this, then I'm good. Or just one. That's all we need. So to get the canon in one volume, once again, God had to use human instruments. And at church councils in the first centuries after the resurrection, 
leaders who understood the authentic and the self-attesting nature of Scripture met together. And they had a list of rules of what it would take for a book to actually qualify as Scripture. How many of you want to hear the list? <laughs> I don't have it. I'm just teasing. I'm just seeing what you guys would do with them. It's detailed. For a book to qualify as actual Scripture at this council, it was insane the thing it had to go through. And that's why the Bible you have before you doesn't have the Apocrypha in it. Because none of those qualified at the council as actual Scripture. The Apocrypha is not quoted once by Jesus or by any of the apostles in the New Testament. And yet the Old Testament books, are, they're quoted again and again and again. All right, so here we go. Then we get to this next issue, which is translation. Translation. You guys know this one. Pretty easy. God uses man to render his words through languages. Although this act has been done for thousands of years, it's still taking place today. Do you know there are hundreds of languages that still don't have the Bible in their own tongue? There are hundreds of languages that only have the New Testament. They've never had the Old. And the Bible was written mainly in two languages, Hebrew and Greek. How many of you understand that not many people in the world speak those languages? Kind of tiny little sliver. And so perfect copies of those manuscripts have been translated into a multitude of languages, reaching men and women and boys and girls all around the globe. We have the privilege here in the United States, in English-speaking countries, of having God's Word available in our language. But having it available comes with it a huge responsibility. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And because we have the Bible in our language, we are responsible to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to apply its truths. That's where illumination comes in which is God clarifies His words through the Holy Spirit. Every piece of Scripture has exactly one interpretation. Whatever God meant when He said it, that's the interpretation. There's no other way to interpret it. But the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and shines a light on it. And He lights our lives with it. God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit in our lives. It's a living book. Third part of the message, and this is a quick one, challenging God's authorization. <clears throat> challenging God's authorization. Now, some of you are young Christians. Maybe you're not even sure if you're a Christian yet. Maybe you've been going to church for years and you've never really heard much on this topic. Um, you would be shocked at this, perhaps. Maybe you're not shocked at all. Skeptics and scholars have tried to undermine the authority of the Bible for centuries. Destroying God's Word is Satan's highest priority. He started that with Eve in the Garden of Eden when he said, Half God said, and he hasn't stopped since. If he can't mess up inspiration, he tries to mess up preservation. Now, the work of Satan has been obvious. As you look back through the centuries, He's still actively trying to question and distort God's words. 
He does that so you won't have them to live by. The Dark Ages went from 500 to 1500 A.D. You know why the Dark Ages were dark? Because the common people had nothing written in their language of God's Word. That's why it was dark. That's why over a hundred million Christians, did you catch that? A hundred million Christians were murdered during the Dark Ages for their faith because they were secretly trying to copy parts of the Word of God and it was being squashed by the universal church. But skeptics and Satan, and sometimes scholars, have tried to mess up the Word of God. And you would truly be amazed at the people who jump on board with the latest accusation against the Bible. Here's what I decided a, long, a really long time ago. I don't need any human being to tell me which parts of God's Word I can trust. I don't need any of them. For me, it's either all or it's none. I can either trust the old black book called the Bible or I can't trust it. Because if somebody tells me, well, that part of this manuscript was faulty, and well, what's that based on? Somebody's word, somebody's opinion. And I'm going to trust the God who spoke the world into existence to be able to preserve his words on paper for me. Either God's promise that he would keep his words is true, or it's not. God's promise didn't say, heaven and earth shall pass away, but some of my words shall not pass away. You know, people go on the most absurd rabbit trails when it comes to Scripture. You really wouldn't believe it. I've heard people say to, to me before, until you can prove to me that every verse in the book is verified Scripture, I'm not buying it. But you know, they live their lives on much shakier ground. There are people who demand to know every detail of God's process before they believe but they eat things without all the ingredient information listed. They obviously trust the cook. They obviously trust the restaurant enough to do that. Can you imagine this? I demand to know every detail of the chef's life before I eat at this establishment. I demand to know every ingredient in the walk-in before I come into this place. I think people, some people maybe do that. Because it's possible that happens. These same folks, you know, they drive engineered vehicles that they don't understand. You can imagine this. I demand to talk to every auto worker at the plant who had anything to do with this car before I'll drive it. But they do it with the Bible. I demand to know who every human author was, and until you can tell me dogmatically who wrote the book of Hebrews, I won't believe the Bible. I don't really do this. That's so far out. It's like we're on the moon right now. I feel like the people in the back are going like this to me. What just happened? You've got to hang with this series for two more weeks. And some of you are going to skip next week just because you felt like, man, this week was a disaster. We, we didn't connect with anything that was going on. Next week, I'm going to have these poster board things that I get to hold up and show you some neat things. Huh? Like show and tell. 
right? You guys are down with that. I can see the smiles just came over. It's like I gave everybody ice cream or cold watermelon or something. Okay. What it, what it all comes down to is it's always this. Sinners don't want God's authority to be real because then they'll have to answer for their lives. And so they will go out of their way to bash anything related to God. I hate, I hate to be the one to break the news on this, but the fact that you have bashed God doesn't change His authority one bit. The fact that you say Scripture is phony, written by men, full of errors, etc., etc., doesn't change God's authority one bit. In the end, either you're right or God's right. And I've taken my chances on the fact that God's right. Since I can't even put a birdhouse together without messing it up, I'm going to rest on the creator of heaven and earth from my destiny. I have confidence in God's approach, and that's the final thing. Confidence in God's approach. You'll never go wrong placing your faith in God's finished revelation. Those who have embraced the Bible as the infallible and errant word of the living God have had their lives entirely transformed. In the first century, they didn't even have the New Testament. Most of them didn't even have the Old Testament. But you know, a church might have one letter or a copy of one letter from the Apostle Paul or Peter or John and they would come and meet together every week with that one letter. And they would read the words and study the words and memorize the words and live by the words. I've said this before. If you just took the letter of Philippians and decided to study and live by it for the rest of your life, you'd do pretty well. And if you just took one book, Philippians, four chapters long, and you said, I'm going to know this book inside and out, it would never get old to you. But you know, we have 65 other books. There's never going to be any more. It's done. It was finished when John the Beloved wrote the final amen of Revelation. There's never been and there will never be another book or another testament, not from the God of inspiration. You can have confidence in God's Word. And I pray that your faith in the Bible is going to be a living faith, not just a textbook faith, not just to give a few facts of the family barbecue type faith, a real, authentic, daily, growing faith. The biggest thing, it always comes down to this, and you guys know what I'm going to say. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. God gave it to us as an inspired, preserved gift. And a lot of Christians don't even open it up between Sundays. Read the Bible. It will change your life. There is no better guide. There's no better guardrail. I remember years and years ago, my mom had an old Bible that her parents gave her. And I opened it up. And it had the year she graduated from high school, 1960, blah, blah, blah. And here's what it said at the beginning of it. This book 
will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And you know what? I have found that remarkably true in my life. Remarkably true. You need the Bible in you every day to knock you back in the middle of the road. In the next two weeks, please be in your seat with your attention cap on because we're going to cover some intense ground to show you the intricate details of how we got the Bible. And you should know how we got it. It's important to your faith. The Bible's real. It's living. Let's bow in prayer. I'm going to pray a prayer of commitment today for us all regarding God's Word. And I hope you'll embrace God's Word in your lives this week. If you have something on your heart today, maybe you don't even know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we'd love to meet with you and share that with you. You just take my hand after the service or any of our counselors or deacons and say, I want to become a Christian. We'd love to show you that from the Word of God. Maybe you're struggling with whether or not the Bible's real, with whether it's really God's book, and we'd love to talk about those things with you. But if your heart says, God, I know this is your word. I know for certain that every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. And your heart sings out right now, God, thank you for your perfect word. Would you just slip your hand up? Just say, God, as a testimony of my faith in your word, I believe that this book is the Bible. I believe it's your word. Father, we thank you for the word of God. May it ever be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Oh, how precious, oh, how valuable is the word of God. And Lord, as a human instrument today, I, I know that I have failed in many ways to convey just how wonderful how magnificent your word is. And so I pray that the Spirit of God would do that in our hearts, that we might take the Bible and not throw it on a shelf or in a car seat till next week, but open it, study it, live it, and use it to bring other lives into your kingdom. You're such a good God. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you.